Welcome to the weekly podcast of Bright Star Bible Church. Thank you for joining us. As you listen to the proclamation of God's Word, our prayer for you is the same prayer that Jesus prayed for His church in John 17, 17. Father, sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. First Corinthians 15, we're going to look at 12 through 26. This is the Word of God. Now if Christ is preached that He has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we bore witness against God that He raised Christ whom He did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and after that those who are Christ's at His coming. Then comes the end, when He hands over the kingdom to God the Father And He has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. And the last enemy to be abolished is death. This is the Word of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You so much for Your Word. We pray that You would open our eyes, that the Spirit would powerfully illuminate the Word today, and that each and every heart would be focused in on what You would have to say to us this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. This morning, I would like to lay a foundation for you as we do a bit of a biblical survey. No big deal, just from Genesis to Revelation. And uh, I'd like to show you how devastating Christ's finished work was to the forces of darkness and how the resurrection and all of that really makes a huge difference in our eternal fate. And I would like to bring to light the glory of the resurrection beyond just your typical Easter Sunday message. In other words, what does the resurrection mean for you and I? What does it actually mean in tangible terms that could give us hope in today's world? Well, in this passage, Paul is making the argument that there will be a resurrection of the dead. And in verse 13, he ties together... Christ's resurrection from the dead with your resurrection from the dead. And not only that, but he makes the case that everything that we believe today hinges on the resurrection. In Christ's resurrection, uh, we realize if it never happened, we're in big trouble. Paul says, if he wasn't resurrected, resurrected, there will be no resurrection for you and I. He says, our preaching then is in vain and your faith is in vain, and your faith is actually worthless. He says, you are dead in your sins if Christ was not resurrected. 
All of those who have died before us and we believed went on to be with Jesus, nope, they perished too if Christ had not raised from the dead. And then he says, we of all people are to be pitied the most because we believed in something that was untrue and that would make us fools. And worst of all, I believe, we would be made liars about God Himself because we have attested to something that happened that God did not say has happened. Do you understand? However, in verse 20, the great and glorious news is proclaimed, Christ has been raised from the dead. Now there's a way to help you understand how all of this is unfolding according to God's sovereign overarching, almighty plan from Genesis to Revelation. And I'm going to break it down in four easy-to-understand categories from the beginning all the way to the end, from the alpha to the omega, from creation all the way to the consummation when all things are made new. And here's the four categories. Creation, corruption, redemption, restoration. Creation, corruption, redemption, and then restoration. So let's begin with creation. We all know the story of creation, and here at Bright Star Bible Church, we teach a literal seven-day creation. We do not look to scientists to give us an accurate account of something that was supernatural in the past. They are mere men. They are finite. All they can do is speculate, and uh, they weren't there. But they only have the ability to draw conclusions by uh, the matter the same way a, a, a turtle would look at his own shell and try to explain how his existence, uh, how he got here from his turtle shell, right? Uh, they're just looking at the matter around them and trying to draw conclusions without considering that there is a supernatural uh, God who transcends all time, space, and matter and that He created things by the power of His Word, His his omnipotence. We look then to the account given by God in God's Word, and He is the transcendent Creator, as I said, of all time, space, and matter. It's silly to just look at what's around us and try to draw conclusions. And what God says is this, He created all things, and when He was finished, He looked at what He had done and He said, It is finished and it is good. It is finished and it is good. It didn't need tweaking. It didn't need to evolve, okay? God said, finished. You all know what finished means. And it is good. It was perfect in His creation. Now imagine this spectacle of early creation. Eden, the mountain of God, literally where heaven and earth overlapped. You had both the myriad of physical creatures that God had created, including Adam and Eve, and they coexisted with this myriad of spiritual beings that God had created, referred to in Scripture as Elohim. There are various, just like there are various forms of fleshly beasts and and animals and all of that in the physical realm, there are the same types of Elohim or spiritual beings in the spiritual realm. And these, we know in Scripture, we hear words like cherubim, we hear seraphim, you've got your angels and your archangels. There's a hierarchy of created spiritual beings, and uh, including a being by the name of Hillel. And that name means light bearer. 
and most of you know him by the proper name, Lucifer. But in fact, that name is actually never given in the Bible. Uh, the devil is never given a proper name in Scripture. That was actually added, that name was added by a man by the name of Jerome when he translated from the original text into the Latin Vulgate. He actually pulled that light bearer word and made it mean Lucifer. And then from then on, the church believed that Satan had a proper name. But the Bible never gives Satan a proper name. So Eden was the age of innocence, a time to be fruitful and multiply and enjoy the perfect provision that God had given all of His creation. However, we all know the story. There was trouble in paradise. And while things were practically perfect, they were not impervious to evil. Sin entered into the scenario and evil had its way. And of course, it all came crashing down. And this leads us into the next period of time we call corruption. This next category. In Romans 5.12, Romans 5.12, we see this passage. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death came through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. You see, we're born with this spiritually terminal disease. And because Adam and Eve rebelled, sin entered the world, and now we are sinful as well. Now, this is bad news. And uh, in that moment, Adam and Eve rebelled immediately. All of their unborn children, including you and I, including your kids and your grandkids, every unborn child of Adam and Eve died spiritually in that moment. They were without hope. Every human heart would be the Bible says, conceived in sin and wickedness. Every human from birth would be desperately wicked. I don't want you to take my word for it. I want to look at Scripture this morning and make this case for you. Psalm 51.5 Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in wickedness did my mother conceive me. And so we see in this passage, there, there are no good people. You were conceived in wickedness and in sin. And Jesus told, remember what Jesus told the, the rich young ruler? He said, there is no one good but the Father. Don't dare call any human good. Only God is good. He, he brought that separation between God and man. So does our condition change then between conception and wickedness and our birth? Not according to Scripture. In Psalm 58, or Psalm, uh, yeah, 58, 3, it says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. Well, so then we ask the question, does our, con our condition change between our birth and our youth? The time we're young men and young women, Genesis 8, 21, the Lord said in His heart, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. It's evil from his youth. So we don't get better as we get older. In fact, because we're blind to the gospel, we act out in our fallen state, seeking to gratify our own fleshly desires. Right? We want what we want and not what He wants. We can say we want what He wants, 
but really we want what we want. And as adults, we become hostile to God in our words and deeds. We, we reject His holiness. We rebel against His righteous way because we want our own way. And we are totally lost in our sin and in that wicked thinking. There's no way out of it unless God intervenes. In Romans chapter 8, verse 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It's hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, indeed, it cannot. You cannot submit to God's law unless God Himself intervenes. If we look in Titus 1, 15 through 16, says, to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Your mind and your conscience is defiled. It says they profess to know God. How many people do you rub elbows with every day, every week, and they profess to know God? But there's only one way a person knows God and God knows Him. It says they deny Him by their works. And then it goes on to say they are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. They are unfit for any good work. And this is why Paul states in Romans that there is none righteous, no, not even one. And later he proclaims this, he makes this statement, listen to this, no one seeks for God. We may think that we're born and we grow up and, and along the way we just have this heart towards God and we seek for God in our own goodness. That's not true. The only way you seek for God is if God opens your eyes and causes you to seek for God. Do you understand from Scripture that we're seeing here? And most people live thinking that they are basically good and most do not know that they are actual enemies of God that they are acting against Him in their wickedness. The law of sin and death penetrates to the very core of every human being. It is absolute and it leaves the sinner with no hope of ever reconciling with God, a holy God, on their own. They're absolutely hopeless. So in this era of corruption, even without knowing it, even while convincing ourselves that we are good, Satan became the one that our wicked hearts sought to please. And because humanity gave their loyalty to him, the devil became the god of this world. He is the one this world worships. And if we aren't careful, we can do the same. If you look in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 3 through 4, 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 4. Here's what Paul said. The gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You see, the sinner cannot see the truth unless God acts on their behalf and removes the blinders of the enemy. You cannot see the truth on your own. So our spiritual condition is dire. We are not just good people trying to get by. We're not measured 
by our good deeds. Because remember what we just learned, nothing that you do, not one act that you do in your wickedness is good. Even though it is perceived by the culture to be good, it's not good. You can feed the homeless. It's not good. If it's done apart from God, it's not good. We are wicked people then, just waiting to die. And that's the reality of the situation. And not only facing physical death, but after this, the judgment. Hebrews 9.27, It is appointed unto men once to die, and after this, the judgment. When we stand before a holy God and we give account for our lives, we give account for that wickedness. In Job 18.14, there's a description of death for the hopeless man or woman. Here's what it says in verse 14. He is torn from the security of his tent, and they march him in step before the king of terrors. You look down at verse 17. Memory of him perishes from the earth, and he has no name abroad. He is driven from light into darkness and chased from the, from the inhabited world. Well, obviously, this does not paint a pretty picture when we're looking at death our own death apart from Christ. Listen to that description. He is torn. He's ripped from the security of his tent, his earthly body. And you never know when that time's going to be. He is torn from his tent, from his body. He is marched before the king of terrors, which is death. Memory of him fades until no one even knows he ever existed. You think you're making your mark on the world. Three generations from now, they won't even know you existed. You take into account a man like Henry Ford, right? Well, we know he existed, but do we love him? Do we have a measure of, uh, you know, care for him? No, we like what he gave us in, in automobiles, but nobody knows him. Nobody cares for him or loves him. This prospect... Being marched before the king of terrors is terrifying as it should be because, folks, listen, it speaks of our eternity. Forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. You are separated from a holy God. And these are the consequences mankind must face if we were left in that hopeless condition, in that corruption. But God did not leave us in that hopeless state of corruption. In fact, if you turn all the way back to the first moments, corruption sank its teeth into humanity and into the, uh, the creation that God had you know, so beautifully made. God the Father lays out the consequences of sin as it enters into His creation, and He's speaking specifically to the devil. And it says, To the serpent He said... This is Genesis 3.15. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head, which actually the word bruise means crush, and you shall bruise him on the heel. And this is the very first outright prophecy of Christ's coming in the Bible. 
So even in the moment that corruption on earth began and corruption in the human heart began, God gave us a prophecy about the coming Messiah that would bring us hope, that would bring us the answer, and that would defeat the enemy. Christ's first coming began this period of the time of redemption. And that's the next category we're going to look at, redemption. Jesus would come and He would pay the ultimate price. He would take your sin upon Himself and He would endure the wrath of His own Father on your behalf. And the Bible promises us that if we truly make Jesus our Lord, He will wrap you like He's wrapping a robe around you. He will wrap you in a robe of His righteousness. And when God the Father looks at you, He does not see your sin, He sees His Son. God told us in His Word, first in the Old Testament, that Jesus the Messiah was coming, and that again, we would not be left hopeless in that wicked state of corruption. If you look at Romans 5.14, here's what it says, Romans 5.14. Listen to the imagery. Death reigned. What reigns? A king, an authority. Death reigned from Adam until Moses, and it's speaking of all the time of Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the trespasses of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. So there's Adam, and there's the last Adam, who is to come. And that was Jesus. So he's referred to as, Christ is referred to as the last Adam. Death reigned even among those who put their trust in the law of Moses all the way up until Christ came. But see, people continue to die physically. Death still reigned, even all of that, even in all of that. But see, all those Old Testament saints, even all the people that Jesus talked to and ministered to before He died on the cross, all of those people looked ahead to the promises of Messiah and they put their faith in that. We simply look behind to the promises that were fulfilled in Messiah and we look ahead as He promised that He is coming again. I wonder if you knew that in the Old Testament there are 333 specific prophecies concerning the coming of Jesus Christ. And of those, Christ literally filled uh, 100 of not, 109 of those prophecies in His first coming. So this means there are 224 Old Testament prophecies about Jesus that have yet to be fulfilled upon His second coming. And this time. Those 224 prophecies involve the fourth period that we're going to cover, uh, the restoration, but we're going to get there in a few minutes. The first coming of Jesus began this time of redemption, and it was to validate through creative miracles, meaning, and here's what I mean by creative miracles. He's the creator so He could walk on water. He's the creator so He can calm the storm. He's the creator so He can make a, withered man's, uh, a man's withered arm become whole again. He's the creator so He can call people forth from the dead. That's what a creative miracle is. So He came to prove who He was through miracle signs and wonders and that He in fact was the long-awaited God-man that had been foretold all the way back in that third chapter of Genesis. And then once He had exhausted every effort to make that fact known to the people in that day, He had perfectly fulfilled the will of His Father in His earthly ministry. It was time 
for the last Adam, Jesus, to redeem man from the hopelessness of the corruption that Adam brought into the world. The God-man, the pre-existing one, the creator of all things, he humbled himself. He submitted himself to his own creation. The author of life placed his hands upon those wooden beams and he succumbed his body to physical death. He paid in his precious blood the debt, the debt that you owed and the debt that I owed. And not only that, as if the physical pain was not enough, the real issue in the scenario of that day on the cross was it was your sin that put him there and it was your wrath that he endured the wrath that you deserved. And the Father poured out the cup of His wrath upon His one and only Son. As Isaiah 53.10 says, this is powerful, but Yahweh the Father was pleased to crush Him, putting Him to grief. Now why would it please the Father to crush His own Son? Because the curse would forever be broken. The corruption that meant certain eternal destruction for every single one of us in this room. The corruption that meant uh, eternal destruction for His bride, it was redeemed. The bride price had been paid in full and now we could all be reconciled to God the Father because of what He did. I love this quote I read this week speaking of that moment of Christ's death and the reality that set in, in Satan's mind, in Satan's mind, what must he have been thinking in these final moments, in these words? Here's the quote by a man named Hugh Martin. Satan felt the full meaning of despair and the eternal impossibility of ever having a chance again when he heard the conquering cry, it is finished. His death was not all that was required for full redemption. Jesus would not stop there. He would would go to the place of the dead, a place known as Hades. We call it the grave, but more specifically, do you remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus? It teaches us of this place called Hades, the place of the dead. In Hades, there was a place of torment, Right where the rich, the rich man went. And there was a great gulf fix in between, and on the other side was the bosom of Abraham. It was a place called paradise. Jesus did not go to hell or the place of torment. That is not biblically accurate. He did not go to the place of torment. Jesus went to paradise. Otherwise, He was lying to the thief on the cross when He told him, Today, you will be with me in paradise. Do you guys understand? All right. So, in that act, Jesus repossessed the keys of death and the grave, and He owns them now. And I love the song. Death was not completely crushed. Death was arrested. Death was arrested. Jesus now owns the keys of death and Hades. All right? And upon Christ's resurrection, all of those... Faithful, this is incredible if you really think about it. All of the Old Testament saints who had not been redeemed by the blood of Christ could not go be in the presence of the Father. 
They had to go to the bosom of Abraham until Christ was crucified. So Christ went to the place of the dead, to all of those Old Testament saints, and all the people He had just preached to who had died during His ministry on the earth, and Jesus freed them and sprung them from that place into the presence of our holy God. That's what that act was all about. And oddly enough, as recorded in Matthew 23, and I don't know what the line was in Scripture, but maybe some who had just died in the last two, three, four weeks up to that point, all of a sudden you see in Matthew 23, some saints were raised from the dead along with Christ on the very same day. And the Bible says they walked around the streets of Jerusalem, further confirming to those who had just put Christ to death that Christ in His death was victorious, that they had not won. Jesus won. He was victorious. Now here's where it gets a bit confusing for you and I because too often we try to reach ahead into that future time of restoration and we try to claim eternal promises that are meant for the fullness of restoration and we try to drag them into the present and claim eternal promises for today. And the problem with that is we're still in the period of redemption. His redemptive work has been finished on the cross and spiritually we have been restored spiritually. We have all kinds of spiritual blessings available as stated in Ephesians 1.3. In 2 Peter 1.3, Paul tells us that Christ's divine power has granted to us everything, everything that we need for life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who's called us. He's given us everything we need to love, serve, and worship Him today. We saw that at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured out on all true believers. And the Holy Spirit is our helper. We are indwelled by the Spirit of God. The Bible says we've been baptized into the, into the true body of Christ by the Spirit of God. And that's found in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. The Bible says we have been sealed by the Spirit of God until the day of our full and final redemption. And that's written of in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. So here and now, right now today, we are still in this period of redemption. We face trials. We face tribulations, suffering. But we are being perfected in our sanctification. And there is this overlap, if you will, between redemption and restoration. The promises are spiritual. Look at it this way. There is this material part of your body. And there's the immaterial part of you. Your spirit coupled with your soul. So when you truly place your faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, one of those immaterial uh, and eternal parts of you, your spirit, is redeemed immediately. So when God opens your eyes, you're adopted, you're given a new nature, you put your faith and trust in Him and your spirit is quickened, and now you become a new creation. Okay? Your spirit is redeemed immediately. And once done, that act is now in the past. And it's done once and for all. And it cannot be undone because it's an act of God. Alright? And listen, this act releases you and I from the penalty of our sin. And the fancy word for this is called justification. So when you hear people talking about justification, it's talking about your spirit being quickened, and the fact that you've been sealed by the Spirit, 
baptized into the body, that can never change. If God acts on your behalf and you are a true believer, it can never be undone. You can have confidence and security in that. Also, when you truly place your faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the other immaterial and eternal part of you, your soul, which is always coupled together in Scripture, so it can get confusing. The Bible sometimes speaks of spirit and soul interchangeably, but the soul is different in that it is your mind, your will, your emotions, your personality. Largely, we get this in the act of procreation. You are a combination of your two parents and your soul. You probably act more like your mom or your dad, okay? Your soul, you kind of get that. Some people don't want to hear that. But, uh, but you get that personality. You get those attributes from your, your parents, and that is an eternal part of you. And it is in the process then, beginning on the day of salvation, it is in the process of being redeemed. And as you submit to the knowledge of God's Word, you are being transformed into His image in your mind, your will, your emotions, and your personality. And it takes place every single day that we're alive on this earth. Right now in the present, this releases you and I from the power of sin in our daily lives. Sin no longer has a hold on us. In fact, Paul says, do not pick up those chains once again. If you've got chains around you, it's on you. That's your fault. You are free, and it was for freedom that Christ set you free. Now, this process, this day-to-day process of being transformed into the image of Christ, the fancy word for this is sanctification. We cannot mess this up if we're a true believer because this too is in God's hands, the Bible tells us. He calls us, He opens our eyes, and He is faithful to complete His work in us. Philippians 1.6 says, For I am confident of this very thing, that He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He started it, He's going to finish it. Amen? We can have confidence in that. 1 Thessalonians 5.24 He who calls you is faithful, He will surely do it. It's not on you. It's on Him. All we have to do is submit to the truth of His Word. Hebrews 10.23 Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess, for He who promised is faithful. He who promised is faithful. You see, if we are true, genuine followers of Christ, Jesus is our guarantee. He's going to finish what He started. But it begs the question, then, what about our bodies? What about the material part of us? Well, have we conquered death? Can we claim healing for everyone across the board in the present? Did we already receive our ultimate healing and watch our bodies stop aging the moment we accepted Christ as our Lord? Can I get an amen? Does your body stop aging? Yeah, we got a lot of oh me's out there. Of course not. We're talking about now the redemption of our bodies, a new reality in the future in which we will be transformed and have bodies that you cannot even imagine. Perfectly tuned for eternity. Perfectly tuned to stand in the presence of Almighty God. And this one day will release us from the presence of sin. Sin will be no more and we'll never have to deal with it again. And this, the fancy word for this is glorification. All three 
The salvation of your spirit and soul and bodies are guaranteed. So let's continue with this idea of Christ as our guarantee because the resurrection is proof that this guarantee of all things being made new. We can be assured it's going to happen because of the resurrection. We can be assured it's going to happen one day in the future. So folks, the resurrection is everything to us. It is the guarantee of the next period which we're referring to as the restoration. Let's look at our passage again in 1 Corinthians 15. If you'll uh, look at that again, 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 23. And I want to point out a few little words and phrases here that are so essential for you to understand. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. And here's the phrase, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each, listen, he's specifying, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, he's first, and after that those who are Christ's at his coming. So this term firstfruits is important for us to understand It's a guarantee. Specifically, this was an agricultural guarantee. If you were to turn back to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 18 and verse 4, the first fruit, he says, the first fruit also of thy corn, of thy wine, of thine oil, and the first of the fleece of thy sheep shalt thou give him. So before they would take in the entire harvest, and remember, this was their life. It was an agrarian society. They had no technology. They had no industry. They had none of that. All of them were farmers or they were, uh, you know, masons or carpenters or all of those things, okay? So this was everything to them. So before they would take in the entire harvest, they would go out and collect one bundle of corn or one bundle of wool or one vial of oil and they would take that and offer it to the Lord as an offering, the, the offering of first fruits. This was to honor the Father for all of His blessings, but it was the first fruits that was guaranteeing that this is the first bundle, but all the harvest is out there and we're ready to bring in the sheaves. We're ready to bring it all in. So what does it mean that Jesus is called the first fruits of the resurrection? Well, to clarify, let's look at a few more verses where it's not specifically called the first fruits, but it brings in another idea when it talks about the firstborn, Christ being the firstborn of the resurrection. Acts 26-23, Christ was to suffer and that as first of the resurrection from the dead, He was going to proclaim light both to the Jews and the Gentiles. Revelation 1-5, this is the very end of the book. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to Him who loves us and released us from our sins by His blood. So Christ is both the first fruits of the resurrection, meaning a guarantee, and He's also called the firstborn of the dead. This means that He's the first man to rise from the dead and to stay risen from the dead eternally. So just think about this. As awesome as the miracle of Lazarus being raised from the dead the poor guy had to die again. (laughs) 
All right? Those saints who were raised from the dead at Christ's uh, resurrection, they walked around the city. They all had to die again. It's like, well, honey, sorry you have to go through this again. Right? When Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, He was the firstborn of the dead. He was the first to be raised and receive a glorified body. All right? He never died again. And as the first fruits of the resurrection, He is again the guarantee that a resurrection harvest is coming in the future. And that one day, you and I, we too, would be glorified and we too will receive our glorified body just as Christ did. Now, here's a couple things that are important to note. I'm giving you some pretty good theology here this morning, so I hope you appreciate it, even if right now it's going in one ear and out the other because your brain is mush, you can go back and watch the video, okay? But this is important to note, that Christ stole the enemy's authority at the cross, and He and the powers of darkness were defeated. Satan and the powers of darkness were defeated. They were arrested, if you will. Okay, But Satan is yet to be crushed as was prophesied in Genesis 3.15. I want to prove this to you with Scripture. So you're not just thinking I'm throwing things out here with no biblical reference. You guys should know better than that by now. But Paul says this in Romans 16.20. He says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And this of course, was after the cross. It was after the Holy Spirit was given. It was after His ascension when He sat at the right hand of the Father. And yet the Spirit of God inspired Paul to write that the crushing of Satan was yet in the future. Right before the white throne judgment, just prior to Jesus making all things new, Satan will ultimately be crushed. Revelation 20.10 says this, And the devil who deceived him was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. At that point, Satan is uh, is stripped of all authority and power, which by the way was given him by an almighty God, and he is thrown forever into the lake of fire for eternal punishment. Note this also. Death and the grave were conquered at the cross. They were arrested, but they have yet to be vanquished forever. That day is coming as well. So if you look at our passage here, specifically in verse 26 in 1 Corinthians 15, it says these words very clearly. The last enemy to be abolished is death. So even after Satan's destruction, death will be defeated last and forevermore. And this takes place at the final resurrection. Now you can flip or look down further in 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to look at verses 53 through 55. 53 through 55. He's talking about your bodies now. Your bodies. For this corruptible must put on incorruptible. And this mortal must put on immortality. But when, that's a key word, but when this corruptible puts on the incorruptible and when this mortal puts on immortality, then, so we have a when, he's saying when this happens, then this is going to happen. Then will come about the word that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. 
O death, where is your victory? O grave, where is your sting? That's when death is defeated. In this time of redemption in which we enjoy the many spiritual blessings God has given us today, we experience the bond of those in the body of Christ whom we dearly love and we serve and worship alongside. We are also given the gift of our spouse and our children and our grandchildren. Many, many blessings in this world that we have been afforded by God the Father. This is still a period of time in which the world, our flesh, and the devil wage all-out war against you, seeking to defeat you, seeking to defile you and get you off track, and most of all, seeking to dishonor Christ and His work through you. We are in the testing grounds. We are still in the battle. And the battle today is for truth. When there are more, 10 million more lies swirling around than the one single truth of God's Word. We know that standing up for truth in this period can get you in trouble. It might even get you persecuted. And if the circumstances are right, it can get you killed. We are going to face various trials heartbreak, illness, times of plenty, and struggling through times where we don't have a lot. We will even lose those that we dearly love. And as Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus, we too weep tears for those we've lost and those we are yet to lose along the way. It's a reality. Death is not crushed. It is still appointed for a man once to die. And the ratio is still one death for one person. In the midst of it all, church, is Christ enough for you? Is Christ enough for you to endure the hardship of these times? Remember in the time of corruption, death was something to be feared. As one was, Job says, as one was marched off to stand before the king of terrors to stand before death. And now, for the true believer in Christ, the Bible tells us that death is precious in the sight of the Lord for one of His saints. We have nothing to fear. The sting of death for you and I is gone. It's harder on those of us who are still here. But for those who who transition from this reality to the next, from the temporal to the eternal, they're partying, folks. They're having an amazing time. Death is but a doorway into the arms of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ as we're ushered into the presence of our almighty and loving God. The resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ was the guarantee that one day we too will rise again. And if you look at all the attributes of Christ when He was resurrected... Uh, that's just a taste of what we will see and what you and I will be because even then Christ's glory was still veiled even after His resurrection. If you look at 1 John 3, 2, here's what it says to you and I, Beloved, now we are children of God. Listen to this. And it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears... We will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. Scripture gives us this explanation that the moment our eyes look upon our Savior, 
we are transformed and we take on His nature fully. Our, res our resurrected bodies will be patterned after His. See, Christ, when He was resurrected, He was the same. He was recognizable when He wanted to be, and he was, but yet He was still different. And it'll be the same with us. Remember, He cooked fish with the disciples and He ate. Did you know every single time that Christ appeared after the resurrection, He ate something? Amen. Can I get an amen? Like, we're going to get to eat, but we won't have to eat. It's going to be a thing that we do for fun and fellowship with one another. He appeared and reappeared between the spirit and flesh. The doors were locked and He appeared in the room, almost as if He was transitioning between the spiritual realm or the spiritual dimension and the physical dimension. And we'll get to do that too. We will no longer be beings of flesh and blood. We will be beings of flesh and spirit. Instead of our bodies being powered by blood, our bodies will be powered by the Spirit of God. Romans 8, 18 through 25, and we're, I'm narrowing it down here, folks. We're getting close, so hang with me. Romans 8, 18 through 25. Listen to what Paul says. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the eagerly awaiting creation waits for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. For the creation was subjected to Futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. One day we're coming back to this renovated earth and the earth is going to be set free, no longer slaves, uh, a slave to corruption and sin when we return. It says, uh, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Look, the earth is aging. The earth is in the slavery of corruption. It's not global warming or climate change. It's, it's sin that has corrupted the earth. And the earth is headed toward destruction until the Redeemer comes back and redeems the earth. And that's what this is telling us right here. And then he says, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies, these physical bodies that you have now. We are groaning and awaiting that glorious day in which the power of God will transform us and give us glorified new bodies. He says, for in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. So it's realized it's not hope anymore. For who hopes for what he already sees? I don't, I'm not going to say, oh, I hope I get a new phone. I've got a phone. Why would I hope for a new phone if I have a phone? It's realized, all right? And he's talking about in perseverance then, during this time of redemption, we eagerly await and persevere until that time of restoration. So Paul makes it clear, we're in this overlapping period between redemption and restoration. And in another passage, Paul calls it the partial, and, and uh, that we live in, the partial is the time we live in before he says the perfect comes. We're in the partial now, but one day the perfect is going to come. So while the immaterial part of us is saved and it's being sanctified and we have all the spiritual blessings at our fingertips, 
in the flesh, our bodies face trial and temptation. We face the fallenness of this world and persecution. And in our bodies, we groan eagerly awaiting that day in the future. Let's look, about, let's look real quick at that passage about uh, the partial and the perfect. 1 Corinthians 13, 9-13. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man... I did away with the childish things. He's talking about a graduation into a new reality, a new existence. If you still walked around with the mentality of a four-year-old, there's a problem, right? So he's saying we're graduating into a new reality and a new existence, a new dimension. He says, for now we see in a mirror dimly. Mirrors weren't awesome back then. They were weird shaped sometimes and... It distorted the view and you couldn't really see your face clearly. That's what he's talking about. Now, in this temporal world, we behold, we think about the future and eternity and he says it's like looking in a pretty bad mirror. But then we will see face to face with Christ. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I have been fully known. And then verse 13, but now faith, hope, and love remain. These thing, These three And then he says, but the greatest, the greatest of these three is what? Love. Why would he say that? It's what we were talking about earlier. There will be no need for faith in eternity. We are in the presence of the one in whom our faith is placed. There will be no hope, no need for hope in eternity because all of our hopes will have been realized. So love remains and love will endure for eternity. Now, if you would, go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 21 in closing. Revelation 21, we're going to look at verses 1 through 6. 21, 1 through 6. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And it had been made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people. And God Himself will be among Him, and He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things, they've all passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, behold, I am making all things, all things new. And he said, Write these words, for they are faithful and true. This is a promise of God that you can count on. You can put your complete and total hope and faith in. Verse 6, and then he said to me, It is done. From creation to corruption, through this period of redemption, and finally 
the ultimate restoration, the consummation of the ages. It will all be done. God will close the book on human history and we will live on a new earth in the midst of new heavens impervious to sin and evil. We will step into eternity outside the bonds of time, space, and matter. And we will live a new existence. We will enjoy this new creation in life, in love, and in light, basking in the presence of our Savior Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and Almighty God the Father. Amen.